0: god has not rejected israel even in elijah's day when apostasy was one of its great heights in the day of israel god still had his people elijah was not alone he was one in one.
1: hello welcome to search the scriptures the bible teaching ministry of dr carl brogi Dr. Brogy is Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Buford, South Carolina. We are in the 11th chapter of our study of the Book of Romans, and we see here that following Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah, a day is coming when God will restore His relationship with this chosen nation. As we pick up today in verses 11 through 22 in a message entitled, God's Olive Tree... Pastor Carl gives insight into the riches that will come about following Israel's restoration.
0: Take the Word of God this morning and turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 11. If you are with us for the first time, we've been working our way through Paul's epistle to the Romans, and last time we opened the door in this chapter by looking at the first 10 verses. Romans 11 is certainly one of the more difficult passages in the whole epistle to the church at Rome. But that doesn't always surprise us because the bible says my thoughts are not your thoughts god said my ways are not your ways for as high as the heavens are above the earth so are my thoughts and my ways higher than yours and so we're in a portion of scripture that is not considered the milk of the word in a broad sense it's all called milk it's called the pure unadulterated milk but in a technical sense sometimes god will distinguish the meat of the word from the milk of the word the more complex from the more simple. And today we're in a complex portion of scripture. And though it's difficult, it's not impossible to understand. As I prepared it this week, it reminded me of a swing set my wife and I bought some 20-some years ago, almost 27 years ago. We were living in Texas, and we wanted to assemble a swing set for the kids in the backyard. Came in four boxes with four bags of hardware. And there were so many parts I was overwhelmed and it seemed like the person who wrote the instructions was from Korea and knew very little English. In either case, after about an hour, when I nearly lost my sanctification, I called my wife. Now she's pretty good at putting things together. On one occasion I you know, years ago you couldn't buy a gas grill assembled you bought it in a box and you took it home and you assembled it one time i couldn't figure it out for the life of me i'll never buy another gas grill that way but she helped me with my son jeremy and we got it together well even this swing set baffled her the poles didn't even look like they were molded to fit together and we concluded this was too dangerous for our children (laughs) so i brought it back to this store they said there's a 15 percent reshelving fee If he had told me 30%, I would have paid it. (laughs) Well, this passage is difficult, and we need to wrestle with it, but we don't need to quit. We need to stick with it because there's truth here that is timeless that God wants us to hear. It sounds like you have found it by now. Romans, the 11th chapter, beginning now in verse 1. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now here in Romans chapter 11, Paul is helping us to understand the Jewish people who for the most part rejected Jesus as Messiah will someday embrace him. He's been showing us that the promises that were unconditional in nature that God made to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob have not been terminated. They have not been canceled. But the fulfillment of some of those promises has just been temporarily been set aside. And so this chapter will teach us how there's coming a day and you don't want to miss the next message because he will show us there is coming a day when Israel will say that Jesus is Lord now think about the Hebrew people for just a moment if you just read the news you can't help but be interested in the Jewish people in fact as we continue to work through the 11th chapter we're going to learn that they are God's measuring stick for the rest of the world Think about them in different aspects of their creation and life. Number one, they're the geographical center of the world. In the prophet Ezekiel, the fifth chapter, God says, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I've set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Jerusalem is the center of Israel. Israel's is the center of the nations. When we were children, in virtually every grammar school in America, there was a world map. And in the center was the United States of America. And as Americans, we saw America as the center of the world. But when God looks down on this globe, he sees Israel as the center of the nations. He put them on the confluence of three great continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. But not only are they the geographic center of the world, they are the religious center of the world. Of course, Israel is the birthplace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here pictured picture the Temple Mount reminds us this is also the religious center for Muslims, for Islam. They say it was on this place that Abraham literally, physically, actually, or excuse me, that Muhammad literally, actually, physically ascended up into heaven from this spot. And of course, it was here on the mountains of Moriah that Abraham offered Isaac, or attempted to, in obedience to God's command. When you think about Jerusalem, David made Jerusalem the capital city, and the scripture calls Jerusalem the city of David, and it's called that to this very day. It was in Israel, just 60 miles north of Jerusalem, that there was coming a very famous battle pictured on this plain, the Valley of Jezreel. The Battle of Armageddon will take place, where all the nations of the world are going to go to war on this piece. Of geography and so it's the prophetic center of the world God is going to culminate human history as we know it through the people of Israel just as God used Israel to bring about the first coming of Christ God will use Israel to bring about the second coming of Christ and of course it was in Israel in Jerusalem just outside the city that the Lord Jesus was dead buried and then raised from the dead And it's to the city of Jerusalem that Jesus will literally come back to the Mount of Olives. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. And then the Bible says he will rule and reign on the earth for a 1,000 years. Jerusalem will be the capital city for the coming Antichrist, but it will be the true capital city of the Lord Jesus when he reigns. And so you can't help but read about the Jewish people if you are a biblically-oriented Christian and help think about prophecy and so many other different things. Now, throughout time, people have tried to get rid of the Jews. The Hebrew people suffered under Pharaoh, under Nebuchadnezzar, under Alexander the Great, under Nero, under the Turks, and of course, under Adolf Hitler. And during the time of the Crusades, those who called themselves Christians greatly persecuted the Jewish people. But they have survived because God said they would survive. I mean, what other nation in the history of the world has 4,000 years of recorded history? And so here in 9 through 11, we've been learning when Israel was established, why they were established, and by whom the nation began. And of course, they have their ancient history recorded for us, and not much has changed. Their language is still Hebrew their traditions, their homeland, and for the most part, their bloodline, very few Jewish people ever intermarry, and by God's design. And so the Hebrew people follow the same faith, the same documents that God began to pen through Moses and through all the prophets. And a careless thinker of history might think, well, the only reason they could have survived is because they were safeguarded and protected by all the nations of the world. But you know that's not true. No other nation And the history of mankind has experienced more hatred, more opposition, been deported, robbed, and murdered more than the Jewish people. But God said they would survive. We studied last week in Jeremiah 31. As long as you can see the stars and the moon and the sun hanging in the skies, they would have to depart before God would let Israel go as a nation. God has a plan for the Jewish people. And so here, in the longest of all Paul's letters in the New Testament, he dedicates three chapters to the Hebrews. If you remember in the ninth chapter, as this slide depicts, we saw God's election, how God elected Israel out of all the peoples of the world. In chapter 10, we saw how they rejected their Messiah. He came to his own, his own received him not. And we learned why it was they rejected the Lord Jesus. Then in the 11th chapter, Paul is going to say, listen, in light of Israel's past election and in spite of Israel's current rejection, there's going to be a future restoration. God is going to use Israel. They are going to come back in faith. And when they come back in faith, it's going to mean blessing for the whole world. Now, that's the broader context. Let's zoom in again on the 11th chapter and let me refresh your minds for just a second where we've been. We've seen the 11th chapter divides into two parts. In question, uh, in verse one, the first part unfolds in the first 10 verses with a question. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? And he gives a very short answer, no, absolutely not, may it never be. And to substantiate his answer, he gives four evidences, four proofs to say that God has not abandoned the people of Israel. The first was a personal proof. He says here in verse 1, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Since we are dead in our trespasses and sins, since as Romans 3 affirms, there is none who seeks God, not even one. For anyone to come to Christ, God must be the first mover. And God moved in the heart of a man named Saul of Tarsus. And if a Saul of Tarsus could come to Christ, then anyone can come to Christ. But Paul is saying, look at my life. I'm a Jew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I am living proof that God has not forsaken his people. Then we study the theological proof that he gave here in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What does it mean for God to foreknow someone? And so we did a very in-depth word study from other passages in the New Testament. We saw that the word progonosco just means prior knowledge or before knowledge. And so God in his before knowledge chose Israel out of all the nations of the world. We studied Deuteronomy 7. God said, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So we asked a very important question. When God elected Israel out of all the nations of the world to bring his Christ, did God foreknow that the majority of the Jewish people would reject his Christ? Of course he did. He foreknew foreknew this. And we saw even the usage of this word as it relates to election. If you are a biblical Christian, you believe in the doctrine of election. God elected us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. The question is, not does God elect, but how does God elect? On what basis? And God elects on the basis of his foreknowledge. He chose us, Peter said, according to the foreknowledge of God. God in eternity past looked down the corridors of time. He saw every person who would say yes or no to Jesus. And based on that, whether it was an Old Testament saint believing in the coming Messiah or someone in this dispensation looking back on the Messiah, God saw those who would respond. The elect, very simple in the Bible, are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever won't. And if you die and go to hell, it won't be God's fault. But God who's omniscient knows all, but understand the foreknowledge of God is not so much an act of God as it is an attribute of God. But don't miss the significance of his statement. Has God rejected his people whom he foreknew? If Israel's rejection of Jesus took God by surprise, then God might have reason to reject the Jews and go to plan B. But as Paul will remind us, there is no plan B. God knew when he made an everlasting covenant with the Jewish people, how they would respond. So then we looked beyond the personal and theological proof to historical proof. And in the second half of verse two through verse four, he dips back into the life of Elijah the prophet. Notice, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So we went back and we looked carefully at these two Old Testament quotations from First Kings 19. And the point is clear. God has not rejected Israel even in Elijah's day when apostasy was one of its great at one of its great heights in the day of Israel God still had his people Elijah was not alone he was one in 7000 and one God still had his people and so in answer to the first question I say then has God rejected his people His answer is, first, on the personal level, no, I'm living proof. On the theological level, no, God foreknew Israel. He knew what he was going to do when he chose Israel, and he knew of their rejection. On the historical evidence, God has always had his remnant, whether it was in Elijah's day or in our day, and then he gives visual proof that God has not abandoned Israel. Verse 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. He says, just look around. In the same way, just like in Elijah's day, there was a remnant. So there's a remnant in our day. God has always had his remnant. If you remember, Paul wrote Romans during his third missionary journey. At the end of that journey, he comes back to the city of Jerusalem. And when he arrives, the apostle James says to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed well, why were there not more Jews? Why could he not say, there's millions of Jews in our country who have believed what God wrote of in the Old Testament scriptures? Because his verse five says, this remnant is according to God's gracious choice. And it's the same word for election. According to God's gracious election, God elects on the basis of grace. That is the basis by which he saves people. And so he says very plainly in verse 6, for if it, God's choice, is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And so what makes the grace of God the grace of God is you do not merit or earn it. Salvation by grace revealed on the cross of the Christ. It is not something you work for. It is a gift that you receive. And so throughout the word of God, salvation is not a reward to the so-called righteous. It is a gift to those who acknowledge they are guilty. And so verse 7 explains why they did not seek this grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. What were they seeking? The ninth chapter and the 10th chapter said they were seeking salvation. But though they had a zeal for God, it was not in accordance to knowledge. They rejected God's way of salvation. And in their self-righteousness, they adopted their own way of salvation. But you cannot come to God on your terms. If you are going to come to God, you must come on the basis of God's gracious choice. But again, there's consequences when we say no to the grace of God. And so he reminded us that in God's foreknowledge, he knew this was hap- was going to happen. He prophesied it in the Old Testament. And so we read in verse 8, just as it, is, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of super, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then he quotes Psalm 69 after quoting Isaiah 29. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. They said no to God's gracious choice. They said no to the grace of God. And so God said no to them. And Jesus gives the same warning, and it applies to Jew or Gentile alike. He said, while you have the light, respond to the light that you might become sons of light. And to those people that he was addressing in the 10th chapter, because they would not believe, God said they could not believe. And in the same prophet, he makes a very similar quote, therefore God hardened their hearts, God blinded their eyes, God stopped their ears, God dealt with them judicially. So there is an urgency to receive Christ. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And if you are here and you're not truly genuinely born again, you're trying to get into heaven through your own way, God is patient, but he won't deal with you forever. You do not draw yourself to God. God draws you to him. And when he begins to work, he asks you to respond, and they did not respond, and so they came under a judgment of God. So there's an Israelite remnant, even in Paul's day. But as we will see next time, there's coming a day known as the great tribulation period where there is going to be an Israelite recovery. And God is setting the stage even today for that coming day when Israel will come and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Now that's the broad and immediate context. And God wants us to understand his plan for Israel, not just as it relates to Israel, but as we're going to see today, he's going to begin to apply it to us as Gentiles, which is about 99.999% of us here today. If you're using your note-taking outline, there are three key words I want to give you today that really summarize this paragraph of Scripture. The word provoke, the word picture, and the word prohibition. Beginning now in verses 11 through 15, Paul gives us the Gentile provocation. The Gentile provocation. Look again now in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? The New English translation puts it, I ask them, they did not stumble into an irrevocable fall, did they? Still another English translation puts it, I ask then, do they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Have the Jews and their rejection of Jesus moved beyond all hope? Is their fall irretrievable? Is it incurable? And Paul's answer is simply no, may it never be. And as in the first paragraph, he's not content to leave it there. He gives a very detailed explanation. And so he explicitly says here in verse 11, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. By the way, this statement reflects the pattern of Paul's ministry in the Acts of the Apostles. If you remember, whenever he went to a place, if there was a synagogue or a place where Jewish people met, he would go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But there came a point in his ministry where there was such utter rejection by the Jewish people of Jesus as Lord, he began to go to the Gentiles exclusively. And so he's called the apostle to the Gentiles in the New Testament. Now follow verse 12. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Do you see what he's saying? If the Jews' rejection of Jesus brought greater blessing for the Gentiles, then how much more will their reception of Jesus bring great blessing to the whole world? If Israel's sin brought blessing, if God used her sin to bring greater blessing to the Gentiles, what is he going to do when they actually come to faith? He's going to bring great blessing. Let me see if I can illustrate. When our family moved from Texas to Beaufort, we couldn't find a, a house that would work for us with, with a lot of children. And so we decided, well, we'll just buy a house. And so we bought a portion of land and we began to build. And we knew that for six months, they said it would take to build our home, that we would need other quarters. I didn't really want to move all of our stuff into some rented facility and then pack it all up again and move it out again. I said, Audrey, we should just pray that we can find a furnished home. And God answered our prayer, and we took all our stuff. We went straight into storage, and the only thing we took with with us into that rented home that was fully furnished was our suitcases with the clothes in it. And God provided, and it was quite a nice home. It was a rather wealthy couple, and they did not want to just rent their home to anyone, but being a pastor, they thought we were trustworthy, and they rented it to us. They had been married over 50 years and they thought we'll go for one last hurrah and we'll tour the country in our motor home and we'll camp out in that thing. And and we moved into their home and it had all the nice little creature comforts, things that we had never experienced as still a young family. Well, while they were gone, we enjoyed all those creature comforts. He had a wonderful library. Most homes don't have a dedicated room for a library, but they did. They had some of the nicest, comfortable chairs I'd ever sat in. First time I'd ever seen a programmable thermostat. Beautiful sound system. They had even a little lime tree in the backyard. And we would go out there and we'd pick the fresh limes when they were in season. And we enjoyed it. And so as I began to enjoy all those creature comforts, the comforts of a man's hard work for a lifetime, I became king. Let's call these people the Goldsteins. I became king as a Gentile and the Goldstein's house. And uh, the Brogis, as Gentiles, were temporarily enjoying the Goldstein's blessings and their riches. That's Paul's point here in verses 11 and 12. It was like these Gentiles, the Brogies, had moved into a beautiful Jewish home, the Goldsteins. The Gentiles were on the outside. They moved out of their home, And we moved into it. And we, like the Gentiles, inherited all their literature. And so did the Gentiles. The scriptures were provided for them. The Jews, who were the keepers of God's word, provided the oracles of God, as we studied in the third chapter, for the Gentiles. And all of the blessings of the Torah and the prophets were described there in the Old Testament scripture. And so as it was if the Jews, the Goldsteins, were out in the wilderness... They were out there in in their suitcases, so to speak, but the Gentiles, the brogies, they were in the Goldsteins' house and they were enjoying all the riches of the Goldsteins. And so Paul says here in verse 12 that their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. If that's what their sin brought, then what will their obedience bring? So follow verse 13. But I am speaking... To you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them.
1: When we continue our study entitled God's Olive Tree Tomorrow, we'll see that there have historically been times when believing Gentiles were conceited about their position. But someday it is the Jews who will be God's favored people again. To listen to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app available in the iOS iTunes App Store and the Google Play Store. Or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. Just request program ROM55. Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. Well, you can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we continue our message, God's Olive Tree. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.